it's time for Wait What? Your regular dose of real talk with the ghetto genius, Jay Wonder. What is up, y'all? Welcome to Wait What? Your regular dose of real talk. I am your host, the ghetto genius, Jay Wonder. And today, like every other week, we have this podcast. We have a dope ass guest. This guy is a not only a badass photographer, but he's also a badass director. Guys, it is my pleasure to introduce to you to the show, Mr. Tim Tatter. What up, Timmy? What up? What up, Ghetto Genius? Yes, sir. And Jay Wonder is nice, but I, I don't know. I like I like Ghetto Genius. Um, I, I have a I have a funny story to tell though before before we get into questions and in our agenda. But Tim and I actually met about three years ago. Uh, yeah, about three years ago, we were on a seven day shoot in Los Angeles, and it was a big fucking shoot. We were at this huge. We were basically in the airplane hangar in um, one of the studios out there in Los Angeles, <clears throat> and we're on the seventh day, and we had twenty talent, four animals. Three fucking backdrops. I mean, it was it was fucking crazy. And so the last day, we're sitting there, and we we get. I think we shoot. It was going to be a pretty jam packed day. All I know is that we we had to wrap because it was day seven of this very very long and tireless shoot. But everything went smoothly, and then it was of course the last day. So we go there, and um, at the same time, the whole cast of Empire, the TV show, was doing their promo shoot. Uh, in the next studio, in the two studios next to us. So I'll set up the scene for you, Tim. We just we we set up one of the, we just wrapped one. <laughs> I think I think you got I think you got to set up the the landscape a little bit better. We won't name the studio, but but this fucking place is the place with the marble floors, right? Like most studios are warehouses, whatever. But this studio's got the marble floors. This studio's got the private drive-in so the paparazzi can't fucking invade. Like, this studio's got the fucking Cabousier chairs, and they have the skybox with the liquor cabinet for the VIPs. Like, this studio doesn't fuck around. No, they, they don't fuck. Let's put it this way. There, are, there were covers of magazines in front of this studio, basically, because it's so fucking beautiful. I mean, dude, you walk up. It's, it's all marble, right? Right, Tim? It's ridiculous. It's like it's so 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 now proceed. Okay. So we uh so we shoot and we wrap one of the shots up. We have a couple more. I don't know how many we had to shoot that day. So we 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 take a little break and Tim is kind of out and he's talking with the production, the production uh on Fifth Gals, and one of the assistants kind of cruises by me, and I'm like, did this guy just fucking crop dust me? Like it smells, it smells like this dude farted. So, so I'm sitting there and I'm looking around and then I, I look at one person and they're like, did you, it was, kind of, yeah, I was kind of like, did you fart? Did you fart? So then I go to Tim and I said, Hey dude, did your uh, Digitech guy like fart? Did he, I, I don't, does he have the bubble guts? What's going on? So all of a sudden, and mind you too, a seven day shoot, there's a ton of props. Like our prop stylist was a guy that did a lot of the shit from Mad Men. And there's hundreds, like there's like thousands of dollars of props on the, on the ground. So all of a sudden I'm talking to Tim and we're trying to figure out where the fuck is this smell coming from? Cause it smells like shit. 
And all of a sudden, <clears throat> the sewage starts coming up in the <laughs> right by all the props. The middle of the studio, the middle of the fucking studio, the like it starts bubbling like a horror movie. So we're sitting there and we're like, no fucking way. And this is a Sunday. So it's not like there aren't any really employees there. Like not, there's no management or anything there. So we're like, we're like, oh shit. I go, Tim, 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 look. And it's just sewage. Just, and it just smells horrible. So we go and we try to help the, you know, the, um, the prop stylist and all that. And all the assistants help. And we're trying to move shit around. And it's, and by this time we're it is props, not shit. We're not, we were moving props. We weren't, we weren't touching the shit, but we were moving props. We end up being like, okay, we got we got to get the clients out of here because this is fucking embarrassing. We spent X amount of, of you know thousands of dollars on this, and so we go. So Tim and I are talking with the production company, and we're like, we got to figure this this shit out, literally and figuratively, because this is our last day of the shoot, and we can't just stop it. Like, what do we do? We, I've never been in this situation. So Tim goes, and he's. He's talking to his team on, on what's the best approach. And I talked to the production gals. So we're trying to call Roto-Rooter and all this. And we're trying to get management. We're fucking, we're so angry. And the funniest part about all of this is that it was so bad that we had to get those industrial fans below them. And we have like the airplane hangar in this fucking studio. So we have the biggest part of it. And then we were supposed to have lunch in a catered lunch inside of, you know, where we're shooting. We couldn't. So they so they set us out in this fucking middle of this walkway in the halls at the studio. And sure enough, who fucking walks by with just looks disgusted? The whole cast of Empire. I mean, I'm talking fucking uh, Terrence Howard. Every every single one of them, Jersey Smollett, whatever his fucking name is. They're looking by and Tim and I are just eating. I think we we're fucking eating tacos just like, oh, my God, like, this is fucking really happening. They, they, Everyone thought like someone just took a Everybody shit. Thought we all just shat our pants. Like, it's like, so embarrassing. Like, it was like, yeah, it wasn't me. Yeah. So we end up uh, so we end up having to all we all put bandanas uh, around our faces. So this is like this is pre-COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so we felt like recovery. But here here was the saving grace. And Tim, I don't know if you did it. But one of the production gals, one of the line producers, had Tiger Bomb. So we basically all put it above our lip. Yeah, we all put the Tiger Bomb above our lip so we couldn't smell anything. And it was probably the best decision. And then we talked to the clients. So we're like, hey, this is the deal. We'll, we'll get this, this situation resolved. If you do not feel like shooting because it smells basically like fucking shit, we can stop. And I'll figure it out with Tim and the production company and all that. And, and the clients were like, no, you know, if you guys feel comfortable, you know, we're comfortable. So I had to look Tim right in the eye and I'm like, dude, it's up to you, brother. <laughs> You're the photographer. Saddle up, baby. Saddle up. <laughs> and we did. And we and we finished and it was it was great. It was great. That was a, a literally a shit show. Like it was it was you know, you know the the um first and foremost, you never expect like you can you can, you can plan every contingency plan in a shoot. And like, we always do, like we always have a B and C, right. You know, your a plan is your standard plan. Your B is your backup plan, but you always keep some in your back pocket. Like if fucking the electricity goes out and, you know, cause like in California, we have that, right. We have like the rolling blackouts and shit like that. Like, okay, well, what are we going to do if we have no electricity? Okay. we got generators or, you know, we'll shoot natural light over here or do something. We, we have a B and C plan. Right. But like, what do you do for like, you know, three inches of shit in the middle of your studio? Like, you don't have a C plan for that, right? Like, 
It, it wasn't like we had one set. We had like four sets going at all times. We had four working sets where we would go from A to B to C to D. And unfortunately, so I think I think what ended up happening was it was like a three or four hour delay. Yep. And we kind of like flew through the shots and maybe there was some overtime. And and uh, and I think we planned on the lightest kind of shit for the final day so we could wrap out. So I think I think I think like good production, good p- production planning, all that. I have never been back to that studio, nor nor will I. Um, <laughs> I think it's just post traumatic stress. Like I just think like the fact that it like it was like so gaggy for even because even when we were shooting, it was gaggy at that moment. I do remember the best part about that. All that day, we had the monkey from Raiders of the Lost Ark, and. The monkey, talk about me too, sexually assaulted the model. And I don't know if he brought charges or not, but she should have. Because the monkey, on on the model's shoulder, sprouted full wood. And I have a picture of the monkey, like, looking at me with this huge shitting grin. Like, literally, like, hip thrust into the model's ear as he was going at, ah! It was oh oh my god yeah that was wait what is going on and like she doesn't see what's going on and I'm like first of all I've never seen a monkey penis before I don't know if any of y'all have seen a monkey penis but I've never seen a monkey penis and I'm surprised that the proportions of the monkey penis were incredibly off right there was so so weird right and yet and yet this monkey was like. Yeah, I'm a Hollywood monkey, bitches. Like, I've been doing this for 25 years. I was in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and watch me fuck this girl's ear, right? Like, and, 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 like, she had no idea, and I'm feeling violated, and I'm, like, looking at the trainer, like, what's, what's wrong with your monkey? Is this for real? Like, who's the most I mean, like, that, how do you plan for that? Like, I don't know. We don't tolerate shit like that on our set with humans, but I guess with monkeys, like, monkeys are monkeys. But... Speaking of full wood, I had a shoot last two weeks ago, and I've never had this before, but I had, it was a clone commercial, and like super sexy model, like drop dead 12, right? Like drop dead off the charts, right? And another dude, and they were both, they were both nude except for like the pasty things, you know, because it was like, it was like an implied nudity scene, you know, so we needed to show everything, but not everything. And so, and they're like touching each other and stuff like that. And most of the time, and that's a very, it's a very professional atmosphere, right? You know, there's people, there's stylists, there's makeup artists, there's crew, everybody's running around, right? And normally there's not a lot of sexual energy in it, you know, because it's very like, you know, it's very tactical, like move here, do that, like cameras moving around, lights are everywhere. This dude fucking full mast. All right, we got put your robe on. Like you need you need a break. Like and the girls like what is going? You know, because they're they're not they're vertical. They're standing up and down. And they're like supposed to be getting close to each other and like breathing in their ears and stuff like that. You know, and just like implied sexuality, right? You know, but no touching yeah. or anything like that. And he just was like, break, check, please. So so that, that I never have had that before, and I've done plenty of that shit before. And most of the time, it's very non. You know, but that that happened and I was very uncomfortable. And um, but the model was the female model was like she was like, you could have dropped a bomb in there and she wouldn't even have flinched. I was so impressed with this with this young woman, like in her poise, um, like 
don't know. You shoot a lot of people, and and at this stage in my career, very few people impress me. But but every once in a while, there's somebody who I'm like, fuck, that person's a star, and they're, and they're like so professional and so above it all, and like nothing phases them, and like no complaining and awkward positions for a long time, and it's cold or weird, nothing. Like and and, and then the the funny thing was the male model had to do some of the similar moves, whining, complaining you know, grunting and, uh, you know, like you, and so like, so kudos to, uh, kudos to being professional in this business. It's, um, it's, it's a uh, hats off to those who, who bring their a game every time. That's great. You know, and, and let's get into it. And now that we've kind of, you've kind of segued it kind of perfectly, Tim, you used to be a high school teacher, right? I did. I was the worst high school teacher ever. All right. So, so, like, what do you do when you what do you do when you get out of college? You have a math degree, right? And you've been playing football for the last four years, right? So, like, you you, you don't you don't have any skills except for beating people up, and and you know, and you, and, I, and I study mathematics. Like, what am I going to go do, right? Like, count beans. So so um, so I was like, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I, I certainly wasn't ready to go to work, and yet there's an extreme shortage of people who have math degrees um, in the teaching field. And so I applied to a private school to become a teacher because I wanted 12 weeks off, you know, like, cause as a teacher, you get the long summer, you get two weeks at Christmas, you get two weeks at Easter, you get fall break, you know, it adds up to 12 weeks off a year. I was like, I'm not ready to go to work 52 weeks a year or whatever. I could teach. I've been in school my whole life. I can teach. I figure that out. Oh my God. So my first job was at a military boarding school in Southern California. And the only reason I took the job is because I went to a job fair at a private private school job fair. They have these like big job fairs that you can go to. And there's like hundreds of private schools there. And they just interview people based on their resume. And, you know, and like I, I come with, the, you know, football and, and math. Like that's a that's a I'm going to get an interview because I can coach and I can teach. So I sit down, I like, like first I got a note, you get these little mailboxes, right? Of all the applicants, right? And I get this little note and it says the Army and Navy Academy want to speak to you. And I'm like, Army and Navy Academy, like that's not a, I'm fucking not, I'm not, I'm not military. Like I'm, I have no interest in that. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not interested. And they sent back in the email a picture of the campus. And it was an aerial view. And this campus has got like 10 acres on the Pacific Ocean in, in uh, south of L.A., like oceanfront. And they were like, and we pay this. And they were paying like $20,000 more than any other school. And like I was interviewing at like private boarding schools on the East Coast that wanted me to like live there full time, work full time, coach sport. And they wanted to pay me like 18 grand. I was like, I was like, no, I was like, I did the math. I was like, you're paying me minimum wage. This place wanted to pay me like almost 50 grand. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm going there. And no questions asked. Like once the interview, yes, I'm in, sign up here. Why, why would you pay somebody 50 grand a first year teacher? And, and this is, this is like 20 plus years ago, right? This, this is 20 plus years ago. And why would you pay someone that much money as a first job out of college? And then you realize like who sends their kids to a military boarding school? It ain't the kid that it ain't the kid who's got his shit together. It's a kid that's so hopped up on Ritalin that they don't know what day it is, right? And they're like ready to fucking destroy you. And they destroyed me. I got eaten alive. I had no idea what I was doing. I had zero, I never taught a class before. 
I've never been in a classroom before other than being a student, right? And mind you, like I play football, I probably wasn't in a lot of classes. And I show up and they fucking school me. They see me like they see me like fresh meat and they just they just tore me apart. And I like I tried to save the world for like 15 minutes. And then after that, it was like just one long roller coaster of like, get me off this train. And I was the world's worst teacher. And I probably would have been on CNN or Fox or some shit like that for like, I've probably been in jail for how bad of a teacher I was. Like I was so, I, I went on strike as a teacher and I didn't speak in my class for two weeks until the principal came and was like, what the fuck are you doing? And I was like, these kids, they don't deserve my speaking. Like, like I, I got on strike. Like I was the worst teacher ever, ever. I taught for four, for five years and the fifth year, like I, I, I literally just was like, mail that shit in. Like it was terrible. I was horrible, but what it allowed me to do, it gave me a lot of time to perfect my craft and become a photographer because like I had a lot of time. Right. You know, I was like, just, I, I determined I wanted to be a photographer after my second year of teaching. And it took me three more years of like figuring out like how to do it to the point of my last year of teaching, I was doing more freelance photography assignments than I was actually teaching. I was a terrible teacher and, and my wife is a teacher and we taught at the same school together at one point and she's an excellent teacher until this day. She's still a teacher. And she, we have many stories around friends about my escapades as a teacher and they're long and glorious. And I will tell more of them at some other time, but they are, there, there are, there are stories that, that would not fly in, this day and age in this internet day and age, I would have lost my job a hundred times. Oh my God, Tim. So that's, I'm fucking, I'm so glad I, you know, it's funny. Cause when you, when we were on a shoot, when, when we were on that shoot, uh, when we first met, you just told me that. And, and guys, Tim is Tim. You're what? Six, seven, six, seven. Yeah. Yeah. Six, seven. I've tried to bid on jobs with Tim for fucking years for, for years. And when I finally got this opportunity, it was great because I was just like, man, I want to see how he does this. Because if if you look at this guy's fucking shit, it is phenomenal. And we had this, we had this assignment with them that was good, you know, and, and it was so collaborative. And I don't know a, a lot of you listeners, how many photographers you've worked with, but you know, some are just fucking assholes and they kind of have their ego and I can, I could give you a fucking huge list of, of, of who those people are, but I won't. But Tim really went in there. You got to think about that seven days, four sets, four animals, 20 talent, a big client, a big name. And then here we are. And this guy's all collab and to, to shoot for seven days under like high tense circumstances. And it literally minus the, the shit seventh day. Is like it was such a smooth transition. I think that was probably one of the smoothest shoots I've ever been on, to be honest with you. I appreciate that. We we don't I don't fuck around. Um I don't know, maybe I'm just so grateful to be doing what I love to do, right? Like and and um try to find joy in it all. Mind you, like one thing that I fucking put my foot down on is when I work with people that belittle and um that belittle and they and they um, take advantage. You know, the people that work for me, 
I'm a difficult person to work for because I, 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 to work for, right? Not to work with, to work for. And let me, let me paraphrase that. The reason I say that is because I, I do take every assignment as it's the most important thing in, in, on my plan. And I want the people around with, around me to have that same commitment and attitude, right? The people that work for me, right? Because at the end of the day, we're super blessed to do what we do at this level. At the level that we do what we do, it's fucking such a blessing and it's such a, a privilege that if you are out there bigger than the project and you are taking away from the group effort rather than giving to the group effort, I have a problem with that because like you're inserting yourself into a, a mechanism that needs to run smoothly and it needs your assistant. And if you can't be bothered, then I don't have any time for you. I'd rather have you out and pick up the slack with those that, that are the can do's, not the maybe I'll do it. And so, and so I'm hard to work for in that regard because I, I require like focus and commitment and dedication and passion for the craft. I want, what I say is that when I'm working, you're working. If I have a camera in my hand or I'm communicating with somebody, you're working. And so like, I take it very seriously. Like, and those people that work for me are awesome people, yeah. right? Like if you're on my crew, like you, this is not your first time. I'll work, I'll make people test with me for weeks before I bring them on to set with people because they're, they, they represent me. And when you as a client attack my people and you fucking make them cry because you think you have the authority to fucking attack my team, like I got a big problem with that. And so that, that is one problem. That is, that is the one thing that I will say that I will always fight for my guys and, and I will always stand up for my guys because they, they have my back. And so I absolutely have to have their back. I'm glad that you actually pointed that out because we're in this, um, we're in an interesting industry and, and as are you, you have to deal with so many different personalities and teams and all that. I mean, for everything from all the way down to the assistant, you know what I mean? Like down to the driver, down to the, down to the guy who fucking cleans the porta potty. Yeah. And so for me, here's my outlook on, on all that is that anytime I work on a job, especially a shoot, a photo shoot, I always, and you and I, the one thing I loved about you is that we always had an open communication. You were very transparent in your approach and how we're going to do it. And literally from the time we fucking said, okay, here's what the creative that's approved is we fucking, we all put our heads together. We all had, a, we all had team meetings when we had to, and then come this set guys, you should have seen this fucking pre-production book. It was the most beautiful binder I think I've ever seen in my fucking life. And it was just so, I mean, we had, this big ass like wall of how we were going to approach this shoot. And, you know, a lot of you, you know, guys out there d that don't understand it, it, there's a lot of preparation and this was a huge, it was a seven day thing. So when I work with people like a Tim Tatter of the world and he's very upfront on what his kind of guidelines are. And, you know, we, we say, Hey Tim, we're going to pay you this money. We expect this. And he's like, okay. And well, in turn, this is what I expect. And you were very upfront with that on anything, you know, on the projects that we've worked on. And I gotta, I gotta say for you, that must be probably what I would, that kind of led me to, you know, one of the questions I was gonna ask you was what is your biggest challenge? Do you think that's one of your biggest challenges is the people who 
you know, work for you or, you know, or vice versa? Like you just, like you just stated, is that the biggest challenge you think? Not at all. I, I, I'm very, very much have our shit together. And we're very like, I've done, I'm, I learn from every single shoot. I, I, I am so precise and exact that, that I'm like 10 steps ahead of everybody else on set. You know what I mean? At all times. Like I, I can, I see everything. It's like limitless shit. You know what I mean? Like I walk into a set and like everything slows down to like, you know, where I can like know every department, what they're doing, how they're doing it, what, you know, who's on their phone, who's engaged, like where the tripping hazards are, where, you know, where the potential liabilities are, you know, what the model is attitude is, what the client's vibe is. Like I like see it all. Like it's and 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 it's only gotten every day more, you know, easier in that capacity. Like it slows down. They say that like professional athletes, like you know, when they when they first come into the NFL, let's say like the game moves so fast, and they always talk about the game slowing down. And I think it's very much that way. It's like when you first roll on to to a big set, and you first roll on to like the big production directing photography world everything's flying a million miles per hour and time evaporates and you never have enough time to do everything and you're like oh my god like where did it all go you blink and it's over and then like 23 years later you walk on set and like you're like and you just are like you're like the you know you get you're 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 so like sometimes i finish the job by lunchtime and i'm like what am i going to do for the rest of the day because I've nailed the shot. I know I've nailed the shot. Like I know I've, I've, I've gotten 10 shots when the client's asking for two or three and I got five more hours, right? Like sometimes it's like that where I'm like, this thing is, they we can't get any better, you know? And then that, that, that is when I just like blow the roof off. And if the client has confidence in me and they just let me do what I do, then they come out and they're like, shit, I have like five years of campaigns. What am I going to do with all this great stuff? And they build a brand and they blow up and explode and everybody's popping champagne bottles as they cash in their stock options. That, 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 that's what you get. The value is like after 23 years of doing this, like, like I'm going to get your shit faster than you think. And then if you stay out of my way, like I'm going to get your stuff, right? And then if you just sort of go like, "Hey, you you be you." I'm going to load your book with so much good stuff that you're not going to know what to do with. And and that brings me to my next question because you have worked. I mean, you're probably, you know, in in North America if not the world. You're you're probably one of the most popular sports photographers. I mean, your your shit is I think that's what drove me to it. I don't I don't know what what agency I was at at the time, but I, I know we were, we were shooting something um, sports related and I saw your stuff, you know, it was like, you know, the, you and the Gary lands of the world. And I, and I just saw this and I was just like, Holy shit. How is it working with, in your personal opinion? Cause you've worked with a ton of uh, athletes. I like, how is that? How is the dynamic? What is the, is there, is there a place where there's, where lines need to be drawn and, and lines need to be drawn from your standpoint as a photographer and from, athletes because we you gotta know you've had to work with probably yeah, but, shit but ton of egos. I come at it from a whole different perspective you know what I mean and and um than most photographers right like first of all most photographers aren't like fit six foot seven dudes right so so let's just let's just start there so there's a physical presence when I come on the set with an athlete that most of the time they're looking up to me unless they're an NBA player we're either looking eye to eye or they're or they're looking down to me on like a on, on like a, a point guard or power forward level, 
right? You know what I mean? Like they're not like it's I'm not like five seven and you know slight. Like I'm I'm a large dude. And then I also come with the language of the fact that like I've been playing sports since I was six years old, all sports. You know what I mean? Like changing in the car in the same season, going from football to lacrosse, like all sports. So, so all the time. And so I come with it with a certain language of like knowing who they are. Like most of the guys I photograph, they have been eating, drinking, living, breathing sports their entire life. That's what they know. Well, that's what I know. So I can speak a common language and they're on my, they're in my stadium when they show up on my set, right? They're on my, right? They're in my home, right? And, and I make them aware of that, right? All these people, they work for me. And you know what? What I tell them is like, I'm there to build their fucking brand, their personal brand, to make them rich. Let's work together. Because like, if you fight me, you're, it's a waste of time. But if you work with me, you're going to get even more rich. You're going to make money, right? They're going to sign you up for the next one, right? They're, like all these guys, that's an audition. It's a tryout, right? If you're like awesome and fun and smiling and everybody's having a good time, then they're they're just going to be cutting bigger checks to you, right? The audition. And so I explain that to them sometimes when I'm having a hard time with somebody and I'm getting a lot of attitude, I'll pull them up and I'll be like, yo, like, what's going on? I, I get it. But like, if you work with me, like, we're all going to do great. Like, you get to approve everything. So if you think it's stupid and you don't like it, you, it'll never see the light of day. So what do you got to lose? Right? Like, work with me. Right? And usually at this stage, it's like two shots. I'll be like, come here, check it out. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's pretty dope. And I'll be like, all right, let's do more. Like, like and then they come over like, Oh, that's fucking sick. I'll, maybe I'll try it this way. And you're like, gotcha. You know what I mean? Like once they're like, maybe I'll try it this way. You're like, yeah, let's, let's like, I had this one athlete who was like NBA dunk champion. who was like giving me the, the, like the, the, the three hop dunk, like the, uh, like the barely like, and I'm like, dude, are you for real? Like, People love you because you jump over cars during the slam dunk contest. Like you can't give me this. I'm barely getting off the ground shot. Like that's so lame. Like to athletes, I'll say, look, that's not why they love you. You can't do it like that. That's not why they love you. And once they hear that, then they start to like, I'm like, fans love you because you show this. And I'll usually bring pictures or videos. I'll like, you did that, right? Like I want that. And they look at it and they're like, yeah, I can do that. And I'm like, yeah, that's why they love you. And I'll say that. And you're like, hey, fucker, uh, do, a, do a 360 windmill now. <laughs> the thing is, is that what's what the best thing in the world is when you work with somebody over and over again. And then they see you when they walk into the studio or the gym or whatever. And they and they recognize you. And then they'll give you a hug or, or they'll give you high five. And they'll ask you how you're doing. Some of them, like, you know, are following you on social and they'll ask about your kids or whatever. Like, because they know that that you you understand you 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 got their back you know what i mean i think that's the best part about it is like when you get to that level where like i don't know i'm just very confident in what i'm what i do i know that i'm going to make a sick fucking photo with them if they if they if they collaborate i'm going to make a sick fuck a sick you know piece for them and and i haven't had any fails and i can't remember my last fail you know, your, your success is based on that. And let's kind of, uh, 
turn the page a little bit and obviously we know COVID hit in March and you did, you did probably one of the greatest things I've seen um, a photographer do because people on production, production fucking shut down. Obviously you probably went through a phase, but anything from assistance, I mean, down to the fucking down to the driver, we're out of a job and you started this thing. I think with the help of some other people, Art for assistance. Can you tell us about that? Kind of what that? Yeah, was for sure. I, why I, you did I, it? Thank you for that. That that's very nice. I, I um again like to rewind back. My crew means everything, and the people that these people that have given me their lives. You know what I mean? Like I, I have I have an assistant that's worked with me for fifteen years. We've traveled the world together. We've been everywhere together. Like he's given me his life right? The better part of his life is, 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 is given me like that. That's we share that experience. And I know that he has my back. He's had my back literally many, many times, literally propping me up in a gutter and, and not because I was drunk, but because I'm trying to get the best angle. Um, and maybe sometimes cause I was drunk. But <laughs> um, So when COVID hit, right? Like I was sitting around, like my entire calendar went to zero, right? When my entire calendar went to zero, I immediately thought of 2009 when when Bush got on the fucking mic and was like, "Economy's on a precipice," and and uh, and and at that point everything went to zero as well. And I remembered that, and that stung, and that stung a lot of people because this is a cash flow business. We work on, we you know we're we're paying out for one job that we haven't been paid on, um, and hoping for the next job. And all the while, like managing when the checks are going to come, you know what I mean? Like, you know, six figure checks that 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 uh, are we're waiting 90, 180 days on. It's a cash flow business. And then all of a sudden it goes to zero. Right. And what I immediately think of is that is all the guys that work for me on a freelance basis, like assistance. He is an employee, but in an employee in a, on a on a freelance employee, like a part-time employee kind of basis. So he only works when we have jobs, but you know, by the government, he's an employee and we, and he gets all the benefits of an employee. But so, but a lot of these guys are, are job by job employees and they make $400 a day, $500 a day, $600 a day, somewhere in that range. Um, and that's what they depend on. And they, and you know, maybe they work five, 10 days a month, California, 10 days a month, $6,000 a month, $72,000 a year. That's not, a lot of money. Um, it sounds like a lot of money, but in California, like two kids, it's, you know, single parent is not a lot of money, right? Like he's, he, you know, he's a, he, he's a provider for two children. Um, his wife doesn't work and, and, you know, he's had my back. So immediately I was like, fuck, like I got to take care of my assistant. Right. It was very selfish, myopic. Like I take care of my assistant. And, and with that said, like, it's just, a, it's a cash flow thing. Like, obviously I would take care of them. Like I've always take care of them, but, but I know like this job and this job and this job and this job, a GIF job. And I added it up and I was like, we just lost like, cause this is the very beginning. I'm like, all right, he just lost 10 grand, two months of work or, you know, one month and a half of work. And I was like, he's just lost 10 grand. All right. Well, if I sell a hundred prints for a hundred dollars, I can make 10 grand and give that money to him that'll, that'll tie the thing. And I bet you I could do that in like a couple of days and that'll just at least take care of him. And it's not like I'm just cutting a check because, you know, people are proud people, right. And they don't want to just take a check, right. Like people want to work. Right. And, but I was like, well, if I do this initiative and I can help my guy out, then, then, um, you know, that's great. So I just started it on like a Thursday. I was like, 
you know, hey, I'm doing this. I'm selling 100 prints for $100. It's art for assistance, right? And I was like, art for assistance. So, so it's like my art and all the proceeds go to my assistant or assistants, right? So I, I have two main guys. Um, so I was like, all right, well, I'll do 100 prints for $100 and I'll try to raise 10 grand. That's that's the math, a math teacher. And and so um, so yeah so I so I put it up on Thursday and on Friday I put it up on the interweb on on um, on my Instagram and um, Eric Almas a photographer who I, who I very much have always admired his work San Francisco Bay Area guy like super cerebral brilliant beautiful photographer I've always admired his work but I've never spoken to him and I've never exchanged an email or a tweet or whatever I've never met him photographers are like that right but he just fucking sent me an Instagram. He said, Hey man, like I saw this thing you're doing art for assistance. I think it's brilliant. Can I do that? And I'm like, absolutely. He's like, great. He's like, tell me what you did. And I was like, all right. So I wrote up a whole plan of all the things I did because I had to figure it all out. It wasn't just like, Hey, I'm going to sell prints. I had to figure out like, you know, how I was going to print them, how I was going to ship them, how I was going to package them, you know, what it was going to cost me to ship them, all those things. Right. Like I had to, I'm a businessman. So at the end of the day, like I'm figuring out like, all right, before I just say press play, I make sure I can fulfill this order. So we, we figured out all the problems. We solved all the problems and we made a, and I made a PDF and I sent that PDF to Eric. And in doing that PDF, I'm like, this is a fucking total roadmap. And it was super easy because at this point I'd already sold like $5,000 worth of print in like 10 hours. And, and I was like, I was like, this is so easy. Like, I wonder if, I get a hundred photographers to do it and a hundred photographers selling a hundred prints for a hundred dollars. That's a million dollars. That boy is good. So, so I, so I, so I made this PDF and I wrote it out that way. I was like art for assistance, a hundred times a hundred um, times a hundred million dollars for race for photo assistance. And I came up with like a marketing package for it and, um, and put it out there. Eric was the first to join on. Then another guy named Sean Fenn out of the Orange County, um, great lifestyle photographer joined on, and then it was like, did, 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 and 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 it and it and it turned into raising hundreds of thousands of dollars in a very important time when people needed um, relief, and allowed me to give money to my top five assistants, and we sold a shit ton of prints, and a lot of people got prints, and I have art all around my fucking office that you can see here from no, not there, but all around my whole fucking office that I got, like, for example, like a Brian Bowen Smith, one of a motherfucking hundred right here, like a beautiful piece of artwork for a hundred dollars. Like, and I got a bunch of them and I got from all kinds and I donated to everybody who signed up for art for assistance because they followed my pledge. So I came along their pledge and, um, and we did really well until photographers, became photographers and started not sending out their prints or start, you know, so people gave them a hundred bucks and they never sent out their print or stuff like that. And people didn't follow through. And, and, you know, so we raised hundreds of thousands of dollars, but some people showed their true colors and that was embarrassing. So I actually ended up buying a print because, you know, the, the fact that Tim was looking out not only for his assistance, but it caught wind it fucking, I mean, prints were selling guys. I got, the 12th print of a hundred of Michael Jordan in his final and his final MVP season in the league. I have one of those and it's uh, signed and um, it's all, you know, it's, 
if I was authenticated. The last dance. That was like when the last dance was rolling that that photographer, Sandro, another guy, let me tell you that story. Like Sandro, first of all, Sandro. So, so like there are some guys in our first assistance with that. That was, that made me the most proud is that, there were legends that signed up for Art for Assistance that thought it was a great idea, that guys that I admired always and all time. And and um, and they just like were like, yeah, that's just great. I love the idea of helping my assistants. It wasn't like it went the money went into a big pool. It wasn't like like the money. So for example, like I sold my prints, collected the money, and sent out my checks to my guys. And every photographer did that. They collected the money and sent out checks to their guys, right? The guys that have had their back. And so it wasn't like the money would came into a big repository and everybody, you know, kind of took what they, you know, needed to cover their business expenses and then 10 bucks went to assistant. 100% of the money needed to go to the assistants. That means I paid for shipping. I paid for the labels. I paid for everything. 100% of every dollar that anybody gave me went to an assistant. So if you gave me $100, not $99 went to the assistant, all of that money went to the assistant, all of it, 100%. So it was truly a pledge that like I was going to give, it cost me over $3,000 just to ship my shit. So so it was a pledge to give to others. And so the, the photographers showed up and they pledged to give back. And, and big photographers. And it's a lot of work. Like you have to print them yourself. You have to sign them yourself. You have to roll them up yourself. You have to do all this stuff. And, and it was a big pledge. And a lot of guys that, that were legends and mad respect for them and their beautiful skills and big fucking guys that, that should have other things to do, like stepped up and were part of it. And that was what I took away with for me was like the most honor in it was that, was that the best of the best saw this as a, as a, as a, as a, as, as what, you know, something worthy. And it certainly was worthy. And it, God, I wish no one knew that coronavirus was going to be fucking kicking our ass for, you know, what, nine months now, 10 months now, like it's still kicking people's ass and people assistants are still fucking hurting. And at least we're getting back to work now. Like people are doing work and productions, but it's not the same. Like I'm probably at, 50, 40% capacity, 50% maybe, like if I really kind of penciled it in, it's not what it was. Like I'm not firing, you know, five, five shoots a month now. Like, you know, I'm doing two a month maybe, you know? And so it's definitely not like, so guys are still hurting. And like, I thought the other day, I was like, fuck this dark winter. I got to call up with something else because I don't know how my guys are fucking doing because unemployment's ending and, and there's no relief and, so there probably might be an art for assistance too, but I'm going to do it differently the next time where I think, I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to set it up differently because it was, it became, it became a full-time job for like three people in my studio for three months. So that it ended up being, <laughs> being bigger than I thought it was. Hey, I'm going to tell you right now, Tim. Um, now there, I think there's no words for me to express it because I've done so many shoots in my lifetime in this industry that I know how many assistants you have. You know, there there are photographers that have their right hand men or women and stuff. And and you like the Sandros and whoever, whoever it is, you know, the, the big ballers, they have that. There's that loyalty there. And for you to do that, man, 
I mean, shit, I would go on there fucking daily. As soon as this thing blew up, I mean, you send me the link. You're like, dude, swipe up. You're like, swipe up. And you'd be like, hey, this person's going to have this. And guys, these are these are prints you got to keep in mind, too. It's it's weird how the how the industry works. But, you know, these aren't prints you're going to be able to get off the shelves. You're not. And that was the, that was the very beautiful and the special thing about it, I think, Tim, was that these were not only did you contribute and help someone out, you know, the Tim Tatters assistant, but you got a Tim Tatter print that you're not going to see that shit anywhere else. I mean, outside of what, like what they do, you're going to be like, no, there's a hundred and guess what? They're all authentic and you're not going to see it anywhere else. Yeah, Just to give you perspective, like I sold a hundred 11 by 14s for a hundred dollars. That same print, like in the, in the next size up, which is the 30 by 40, which is the smallest is like seven grand. So like I sell that fine art at galleries worldwide Like it's not like it's a piece of fucking art, right? There's only there's only there's 130 of those images that will ever be put on paper ever in the entire universe, right? And these guys got one of a hundred of a certain size. There's only 30 more ever, ever, and now there's probably only 15 more. So once I sell these final 15s, that image will never, ever, ever be printed ever in all of time, and that'll be original piece of artwork. And look, like. I don't know. My work, I'm very, you know, I'm very much at this stage of my career is um, my focus is leaving legacy of art. Right. Like I lost my father three weeks ago and and, uh, nothing teaches you about finality more than like literally going to a crematorium to pick up your father's ashes and seeing where it all ends in some strip mall parking lot, you know, where you go back around back door and they hand you a fucking plastic container with your father's ashes. Like you're eventually dust. And what you leave behind as a photographer are images and no one's going to be looking through your hard drive for your fucking pictures. I want to make big prints and have them in homes and, and offices and um, chair and businesses and schools and, and institutions of, my work and I wanted to leave the longest legacy so that when I'm dust um, that that people remember the my vision, what I saw and how I saw the world. And my work is truly an extension like my artwork is truly my vision is my deepest personal sharing. And the reason I became a photographer, like not only because I love it, but why do I love it? Because I was able to express myself in ways through images that no one could ever understand the way I communicate. Cause I don't communicate nearly with the same level of passion in words that I do in images and to feel the energy of when people see the work that I love and they love it. And I feel that energy and they express that it's like, it's communicating on another level. And I want to leave that. That's my legacy, art. And so art for assistance is was such a great thing because in my opinion, long after Sandro is gone, I'm going to have a piece of him. And my children are going to have a piece of him. And he's a great artist that should be celebrated. Like this picture over my shoulder of, of, um, of Mick Jack. Um, that was a cover of Interview Magazine taken by Peter Strongwater. 
my producer in New York, my first producer who ever produced a job for me for never. When I first came onto the advertising scene, the first producer I've ever worked with is guy named Peter Strongwater. And he was friends with Andy Warhol. And when interview magazine started, he was the guy that did the covers of interview magazine. And this shot of Mick Jagger is a fucking beautiful piece of work and a beautiful moment. And I have an original sign print and I'll have that until I perish and my kids will have that. Um, and they'll, it'll hang somewhere in their office or their, their house and maybe their kids will have it and it'll, and it'll endure past my contribution and my art will do that for others. And that really for me is the most important job I have outside of being a husband and a father um, is creating that, creating a legacy, creating a visual legacy, a contribution to the landscape of our language, like adding words, like Shakespeare added, added prose and added, you know, uh, beautiful words that endure hundreds of years and people revere his contribution to society. Like I want to have that level of contribution visually, at least aspire to. And I'm not saying that I will be Shakespeare, but at least someone can aspire to that. And so I'm working towards that in the next phase of my career. Um, now that I've kind of figured out the, you know, what I'm doing, you know, in my current business, which I, which I pretty much know what I'm doing. Um, now, now I'm, now I'm, leaving that legacy, that true legacy, because like the, you know, the ad campaign I did for X, Y, and Z, like that perishes, you know, with um, the speed of, of tweets. Um, but the, the art that hangs on the walls of important and powerful people that create the rules of our society, because let's just face it, the people that can afford the artwork that hangs on the walls of these people are the people that um, make the rules and, and whether we like it or not. Um, most of the time we don't like it, but my art is very much a statement against not liking it. Um, and my art is very much a statement about truth and about reality and about social justice and about division and union and the need for unity and the need for common ground. And so my hope is that the people that purchase my work, hang on their walls, want to talk about it, talk about the message behind it. Um, and change the way that these people of power think um, and think about a more inclusive, a more um, utopian society as opposed to selfishness, mistrust, distruth, uh, misinformation, power, um, and but rather um, speak to the ability to be a capitalist, but at the same time be compassionate and empathetic, right? Like I'm a capitalist but I'm an empathetic capitalist, right? Like I care about you. I truly do. I care about all of you. And because you, who knows, you know, like I might need you. You might need me. Like my daughter might need you. I care about all of you, right? Like thoughts, deep thoughts. So, you know, you know how, you know, you said you walk into a room and you could see shit like 10 hours ahead of everyone else. That's what you did in this fucking podcast, actually. <laughs> You fucking this, dick. This is a great question. It says, what, um, what's one piece of advice you can give uh, that you wish your mentor had told you? <sighs> this is good, right? Because, because this gives me an opportunity to speak about my father. And my father, who passed on uh, October 23rd, uh, 92 years old, 
was a unbelievable man. My father was, was, um, never went to, uh, never graduated high school, never had a father, you know, raised by a single mother, a Jewish mother in Baltimore in the, during the depression. Uh, imagine that, right. Imagine his starting of life, right. During the depression, America's in the height of the depression. His mother is an Austrian Jew and she's trying to figure it out in Baltimore, got knocked up by a merchant Marine who split town right after the, right after the, uh, the, 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 oh shit, you're pregnant. Let's get married. Ah, I'm out. And he fucking like raised three college educated boys, um, all super professional that have accelerated and, um, you know, grown into, you know, family men, all married with children and raising solid individuals. And, you know, the offspring from my father is, is, um, three boys and, uh, seven grandchildren, right. All from this guy who just started at the very bottom with nothing and raised, you know, just did an unbelievable job, but that was my mentor. And he was a photographer, but what he was, was like a super shrewd businessman that understood like what he always used to say is like, you got to figure out how to be able to rub two nickels together and make a quarter. That's business, right? In a nutshell, right? Like you got to be able to figure out how to spend fucking two nickels in order to turn that into a corner, whether that's buying fucking bubble gum for fucking 10 cents and selling it for 25 cents. And that's what we did as a kid. Like he used to, he, my dad used to go down to the store and buy us a big bag of sugar and some food coloring and some flavoring, and we would make snow cones on the corner in Baltimore in like 95 degree heat in the summertime, shaving ice and selling snow cones for a quarter. And you know what? He would be like, this was $2.50 of materials, sugar and fucking ice and and um, and sugar, food coloring and whatever. And we turned it into like 40 bucks, right? With sore shoulders. And that's, and that, like, that is my dad was a mentor. Like he taught me how to be, how to work hard, like be passionate, like sink your teeth into it and work your ass off. Right. And turn two nickels into a quarter. So that I got covered, but on the other side, the advice that I was never given was that when I came into this photography business on the professional advertising end because remember i started at the fucking christmas tree lighting ceremony right i started at the very 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 bottom of getting paid nothing for you know this so to go from there to the swanky airplane hanger marble studio with the with the empire crew and the shit coming out of the studio that journey had been a million miles and i never had a mentor in that journey so that journey, I wish that I had a mentor that told me that, you know what? You're not a big fucking deal. You're just a dude. And I never had that mentor. And if I had that mentor, if, I, if there was somebody who, as my head exploded, as I went from Christmas tree lighting ceremony to the airplane hangar in that journey, because there was a, a great hockey stick of acceleration from nothing to like, you know, being desired for your talent during that journey, 
for someone to fucking slap the shit out of me and be like, yo, motherfucker, you're just a dude. And no one really gives a shit about you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because as your head explodes, then, then you kind of get there and everything starts to slow down and then you realize you're just a dude. And during that, you learn some really shitty lessons. And so, or you learn some lessons the hard way, right? You learn that you learn that your boundaries are not as wide and infinite as you think that you are. And I think that's something that I regret never being exposed. Like I didn't assist in the industry. So like, let me give you the ultimate fucking industry perspective in case you have any industry people watching and listening. I, I had zero pedicure in the advertising industry that on my first assignment, that I ever first got that was ever an advertising job. I had sent a fucking emails out to some advertising agencies in this San Diego area where I am with some of my work. And um, I bought a list and this is like 2005, I think, you know, uh, 2004, 2005. And um, I get this job. Like I get these guys, they, they bring me in, sit me down. They're like, Oh, you know, we don't have a huge budget. Uh, but you know, like we have this thing. We'd really think you could do great at it. And I'm like, man, fantastic. M mind you, I'm only like, I'm only like five years away from the $50 Christmas tree lighting ceremony. Right. So this, this, I'm not too far along in my journey. And so they slide this piece of paper over to me and it's got a budget an Excel spreadsheet and they, it has a production budget on it. And they're like, do you think you could do it for this much? And I almost won't wet my pants when I saw the number because I was like, like I hadn't made that much money in two years and I'm looking at it like, yeah, I think I can make that work. All right. So, so I had never done an advertising job before. Right. So I see like, and they're like, okay, well, we're going to want a motorhome. I'm looking at this budget and I see it. They say motorhome and like they say catering and I'm thinking like, okay, so I think I need to do that. So I go out. And I rent a Cruise America RV myself and I drive it to Costco and I fill it up with catering. I fill it up with like deli trays, Cokes and Pepsis and like drinks, all this shit. Hold on. Wait, are you fucking serious? I'm not kidding you at all. Like this is what I never had this mentor. I remember I had the mentor that taught me how to rub two nickels together and make a quarter. So when I get this big budget, I have the mentor who says, like, I can drive a motorhome. I can, you know, fucking get catering. Like, I can do all that. So I drive the motorhome. I produce the job. I get catering. I, you know, organize the schedule, the call sheet, the pre-pro book. Like, I do it all. I have one assistant, a hair and makeup artist, and a wardrobe stylist, both of which after the job said they will never work for me again because of the motorhome situation. Because they're like, what the fuck is this? Like, where am I? So they're like lifestyle shoe with like 10 models, right? I drive the Cruise America. It's got the family on the side. <laughs> I swear to God. So I never had that mentor. I never had that. I never assisted a job ever in my life. I never, I never had been on a commercial set in my entire life. A year before that, my big job was documenting migrant workers. And I was sleeping in fucking dirt floored huts that were built into the side of the hillside in Carlsbad that like 10 people from Oaxaca were living in so they could pick strawberries. And I would go spend like 10 days with them. Now I got this budget and I'm supposed to get catering? Like, oh, I'm supposed to hire a caterer? 
Like fucking Costco's great. I was so clueless, so fucking clueless. My head, your head would explode. You know, fast forward, right? So somehow I fucking do that job and I'm still working. And somehow I get hired again. And in fact, I get hired again like 10 times from that same client because they thought it was so great. It, even me driving, the, they hired me again. Could you imagine? I must, I must do something right. So I figure it all out. I finally get to the next level where I get an agent and I'm fighting with my agent because she's like putting $350 or $400 a night in for a hotel room. And I'm looking at estimates. I'm like, why the fuck are you putting me in hotels for $400 a night? Like I could stay at a fucking Econolodge for $69 a night. Like what the fuck? And she goes to me, she goes, are you a fucking moron? And I'm like, what is wrong with you? And she's like, the people that hire you don't want to work with somebody who wants to stay in a condo lodge. They want to work with a fucking baller. So you're a baller now. And I'm like, what's a baller? I came out of the, I came out of the clueless university and somehow made my way to where I am today. Um, but during that process, I didn't have a mentor that told me these things. And the main thing that I wish a mentor would have told me was like, you're just the dude. You went fucking, you went from zero to Lindsay Lohan real quick on me. That <laughs> is so true. Such true. That's fucking great. All right. <clears throat> Last question of the day. You got a new venture. I'm not going to announce it, but I want you to talk about it because I am a huge fan. I have been a huge fan from its inception. I live and die by it and I, I fucking, I dig it. Go ahead. Give, uh, give us a little, give us a little cliff notes version of it. So I'm an entrepreneur as well as an artist and a photographer and a, and a, um, you know, a husband and a father is, you know, I'm just, I'm moving a million miles an hour and I do a lot of things. And, and I like, I've always liked that rubbing two nickels together and make a quarter. I've always been a businessman. I've always had a hustle or side hustle or some kind of like thing I'm working on. I've always had that. And, you know, I've started a bunch of different companies throughout my, my time, my career. And they've, they've, um, some of them been successful and others have gone by the wayside and, but about two years ago or three years ago, um, you know, I, I had I had um, been working in a in a in a venture that uh, leaded me into the opportunity to become a founder of a of a um, a cannabis brand. And um, in that opportunity, we founded a company and you know got investor money and and you know it turned into a a, a significant company. And, you know, the other side hustles have always been like me hustling something or me you know, joining with a friend and hustling something. But like this was an actual like growing it into multiple, multiple, you know, people selling in hundreds of stores and internationally. And, you know, it's like a legit, a legit business. You know, I, I kind of did that. Now, now I've started another thing, too. So I'll tell you about that one as well. But I won't tell you about that one because that one is in the in the pre um our product is still being developed. So I just, I've been, I've become an entrepreneur and, and we started a, a brand. Um, I founded a brand called Vessel. Um, it makes like premium high-end cannabis consumption devices. Um, really, we wanted to set out to change the way people consumed cannabis so that it's no longer, you know, a bunch of like, you know, bros, like hiding a, you know, passing a joint you know, on the corner, but it's like, you know, a sophisticated consumption experience where like right now, you know, like when you and I grew up, like we were smoking the fucking, you know, the dirty dank weed out of a aluminum can or an apple, you know what I mean? 
I'm approaching the halfway point and like, that's not me no more. And, you know, like I want to, when I consume cannabis, I want that experience to be premium. Just like when I drink a bottle of wine, I'm not drinking it out of fucking plastic cup, but I'm drinking it out of some fine ass stemware and you grow up. Right. So we made a grown up consumption device um, for cannabis and it's done quite well. And it's and it's, um, you know, I'm no longer involved in the day to day operations because I'm on to the next thing and and on to creating art and trying to save our democracy. Um, But I'm still a founder and I'm still an owner and I'm still on the board um, and I still have a have a say in the sort of direction, obviously not as what I had as a founder and, and I haven't been involved in the day to day for a few years now. But um, but it, but it was something that, you know, when you when an idea can generate into a company and, you know, grows into a multimillion dollar you know endeavor with, you know, employees and people's lives and investment, then they you feel pretty good about that. I'm I'm um, now I'm on to the next one. I, I kind of got that vibe, um, and now I got another thing cooking up. So I'll share, I'll share that with you in in a spell. It's not quite it's not quite at that point where the intellectual property can be shared over the airways, but it's something equally as impressive as as Vessel. This is the name of the company that we founded called Vessel Brand. Vesselbrand.com. You know, it's not as uh, far along as that is obviously, but it's going to be every bit as impressive and have super fucking talented team that we put together to, to make it happen. So it's just like another game, you know, it's like a, it's like another production. I mean, literally like all I do every day for work is I produce ideas. Now I'm just producing ideas into products and there's there, these are good ideas. Now I know how to make your ideas into a picture or a movie or a film. Like I know how to do that. Like I can make a fucking product because that's all I do every day. It's like you, you know, you guys said like, hey, I want a monkey on someone's shoulder, you know, in a shop. Like I found you fucking Indiana Jones monkey and I put him on their shoulder, right? Like, you know, you just do that on the scale of everything that you need to do to make a product come to life. And you put together the team of people that you need to do it and you make it happen. And I think um, just I love that. I love that part of it. And I love putting my creative mindset into, into like that rubbing two nickels together to make a quarter. I've always been good at that. And that's kind of where I've, where I've, um, you know, my father, like, you know, rest in peace. Like, um, I got to share this with you though, because this is the fucking best thing ever. I, I got to share this one thing with you. And I know it's visual and your audience won't appreciate this, but so love being an entrepreneur, but my father, he was a photographer for 50 fucking years, right? 50 years. And um, and he did it all in his studio. He he shot the pictures, developed the film, went into the dark room, printed the film, packaged it, and sent it out to clients. This is like pre-email, obviously, pre-digital cameras, pre-everything, right? Like when you wanted a fucking picture, someone had to put it in chemicals to get it to you. I'm going to bring these out so my father, my father, this is going to take a weird turn, but it's worth it. So my father, um, in, in his studio in Baltimore, downtown Baltimore, had, you know, these are paper boxes, right? So this, this is what, this is what um, pictures used to come on. They used to come on these paper boxes. These are boxes of 250 papers, eight by 10 papers, right? And you would take this, you'd put it into a, an enlarger, 
in the dark room and you'd expose the image through the negative onto this paper. Then you'd put it through chemical backs and you would make a picture. And that this, these were eight by tens. And he used to fucking sell grips and grips and grips of eight by tens for clients. So like you get your picture taken and before email, if your picture needed to go out to a hundred newspapers through a press release, they would send out a hundred eight by tens to the newspaper, to the magazine to get scanned and to become a piece of art, right? And so my dad would take pictures of people and instead of sending on FTP or email and the picture go everywhere and a million impressions, like you had to have a fucking piece of paper. And these were paper boxes, right? And then you shot film and in the film used to look like these film canisters, right? You see these? These are film canisters, 35 million film canisters. And so my father used to tell me like when he died, he said, Cremate me and put me in 35 millimeter film canisters and put me in paper boxes and give them to each one of you boys. And that's what I want my last wishes to be. So, wait, are you fucking, yeah, are you, my dad are you in fucking here, for real? In, in these paper boxes, and I'm giving them to my brothers for Thanksgiving. And, uh, and this is my dad. This is right here. <laughs> Holy, hold on. I gotta, hold on. I gotta fucking screenshot that shit. So this is his paper box that I got and I took from my, I used to keep negatives in it in my office. Um, you know, this, this is from like 99. And when I worked for him, um, went, went back to learn for from him. And um, this is this box from 99, uh, October 29th, 1999. So, so when he passed, I had to go to eBay and buy some film canisters because I hadn't seen a film canister in forever. So that's my dad right there. And he sits on my camera shelf with all my cameras right now. And that's where he's going to live. Good man. Well, I'll tell you this, dude. There's no better way to end a show with that because that is fucking awesome. And I think (laughs) it's all time, right? Like fucking film canisters, like no fancy fucking vase. Like that's not my dad. My dad was like, fucking put me in some film canisters and put me on a shelf with the cameras. Like damn right. First of all, you know, condolences to you and your father. And I know you were, you were, you know, like we talked when we first met, you know, over three years ago, you were, you were a big fan of him. And I, and you, you know, you told me straight up, you know, that's why you got into photography. So uh, my condolence was that, but your dad is the fucking goat. He's a G. His character was large. Um, I know I have a large character, but I get that from him for sure. I was only a, I was, I'm only a, I'm a, I'm a meek man compared to some of the shit he pulled. Well, that's fucking great, man. And, you know, for all for all you listeners that are tuning in, Tim, I absolutely want to thank you 100%, man. Uh, what you do for, you know, just to to make a difference, to make a change, to to be the difference in such a positive way, um, to me is is very moving. And I appreciate you taking your time today to, to be on the show. So thank you, man. I, I, I can't, I oh, can't no worries, say dude. thanks I, I, Like happy to happy to be part of the fabric i'm there's zero filter on me i'm completely transparent i am what i am um that's all i'll ever be so i appreciate the platform um thanks for fucking having me and um mad respect to the ghetto genius absolutely and uh, dude oh uh if you have any handles or anything like shout them out dude like where they where can they follow you shit like that i'm timtatter.com um you know just i'm i'm there on the internet you just you know, figure it out. You'll figure it out. Like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm there. Um, and I think like really right now, um, you know, right now let's be find Americans, be American. 
Absolutely. And with that said, y'all, that's our show for today. Uh, thanks for tuning in, Tim. Again, it's been a fucking pleasure, brother. And yeah, we'll uh, see you motherfuckers next week. We are absolutely out. Peace. <laughs>